brilliant to see so many of you here, and I'm not surprised there are so many of you here, because I think it's fair to say that we have probably the best speaker of the year. Um, yeah. um, now, I have heard um, Richard speak on a couple of occasions. Um, one was um, on the television program I used to work on, and we had so many emails from viewers coming out. I don't think we've ever had so many emails from people who said how inspired they were. Um, but it's not terribly hard, to be honest, to impress people sitting at home making a cup of tea. So the thing that really blew me away was when Richard spoke at a branding consultancy called Interbrand to the absolute gurus of the industry, and they were just as blown away as Mrs. Bloggs who was making her tea. So, and they had loads of questions. I'm sure you'll all have loads of questions as well. Let me just tell you a tiny bit about Richard. Richard Reed. he originally was at Cambridge. He did geography, um, not a lot to do with making smoothies, basically. He was four years at a top advertising agency. And then in 1999, he started Innocent um, with a great story, um, which I'll let him tell. Uh, it went from revenues of zero in 1999 to revenues of 135 million now. Um, in terms of the way it's organized, one of the most impressive things about it, and one of the things I discovered, I sat next to Richard recently at a charity dinner, was just what an incredible time he's having. And I don't mean in terms of making money, although obviously he's made a lot of money, but just in terms of how much fun he's having, actually having created this thing from scratch. And they do things in a very different way from how people normally do them. Um, I asked Richard when I introduced him what his title is, and he said, I can either call him co-founder, which of course he is with two of his closest friends, or he said, I can say what it says on his business card. And his business card says, Chief Squeezer. <laughs> <laughs> so, without further ado, let me hand over to Richard. Thank you very much. Uh, well, it's a massive, it's a great opportunity for me, so thank you. To have a room full of people is, is brilliant. Um, um, I will endeavour not to turn it into some sort of sales pitch uh, about innocence. Um, and I, I guess it's, sort of, it's quite funny to hear yourself being introduced. I, I guess if I had to sort of describe myself as anything, I'd describe myself as an entrepreneur, as I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room who describe themselves in the same way. I can, I can remember the absolute millisecond uh, when I first became an entrepreneur. I was a 16-year-old kid, and I had a job working in a dog biscuit factory in Huddersfield, where I come from. And the job was, it paid me two pounds an hour, and my responsibility was to to get down on my hands and knees and pick up the dog biscuits off the floor that had fallen off the dog biscuit conveyor belt. And I, remember I was doing this for a, sort of, for a few days thinking, this is a pretty rubbish way to earn two pounds an hour. <laughs> but I'm quite a sort of geeky person as well and I wanted to do a really good job. So I went up to the foreman um, and said, look, I could do a better job of this if I had a broom. Do you have a broom I could borrow? And he looked me dead in the eyes and said, son, you are the broom. <laughs> <laughs> That's the moment I decided to become an, an entrepreneur. So, <laughs> and I actually, I left then. I left the dog biscuit factory that afternoon, and I set up a little business called Two Men Went to Mow, um, and it was simply just mowing lawns of people in my village. And I made a little flyer, I drew it out in pencil, I took a load of ten p coins, went down to the local library in Murfield, and just used the photocopy of ten p at a time to. So I photocopied the flyers and put around the, let the letter boxes of the village and before long I had loads of jobs coming in and I was building myself out at £2.50 an hour so I got a pay rise and 
I had more jobs than I could do, so I got some of my mates also at the dog music factory, and I paid them 2.25 an hour. I was building about 2.50 an hour, and I think that was also the point when I first became an evil capitalist. As well. <laughs> but um, I'm not going to talk about Two Men Went to Know, which is my first love. Um, I'm going to talk about Innocent. Uh, we were talking before about what would be the, the, the best thing to use the time. Um, we said, so I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes. I'm going to do like five minutes on just the, the, the history of the business of how we got started, then do probably more sort of 15 minutes on some of the things that we've learned, because we've definitely made some absolutely massive mistakes, nearly to the extent where we nearly lost the business. So we've learned some stuff the hard way, and we've also learned some stuff from listening to some people that were brighter than us. So I've condensed that down to five things that we, we've learned over the last 12 years. But I'll do the first thing first in terms of how we got started. Um, the background to the business is born out of friendship, and that's, I guess, for me, the most, the most enduringly, um, most excellent thing about it. I'm doing it with my two closest friends. We met at university. We always talked back then about how much we'd love to set the business together um, and had the same circular conversation for, for seven years and never did anything about it. We found ourselves on a snowboarding weekend one time, yet again having that same conversation. And we said to ourselves, look, we've either got to stop talking about this or get on with it. Otherwise, we're going to drive ourselves completely nuts. And that weekend, we set ourselves the deadline that if we didn't have an idea by the end of the, the weekend that we were excited by, then that would be it. We would stop talking about it. We'd just stick to our regular jobs, because we all had decent jobs, and we'd just stop talking about this thing of setting up a business together. So that sort of gave us a bit of tension that, you know, that weekend was, it was either, you know, put up or shut up, basically. And we started here. We said we, we wanted to come up with a business that would make life a little bit better and a little bit easier. That was our going in point, and we figured that if we did that, that there was a certain nobility in that, and also that it would be something that you know, the product or service would then surely endure, and you know, would be in there in the long run, not a short-term fad. So we were feeling pretty good when we were sat on the, on the chairlift sort of talking about that. Unfortunately, as a starting point, it led us to what I can confidently say is the worst business idea in the history of bad business ideas. This was idea number one. It was called the amazing electric bat. <laughs> <laughs> Deeply flawed proposition, really. Um, it was all about a bath that would fill itself to a pre-designated level and pre-designated temperature all at the touch of a button. And I got excited by it because I was the marketing guy, so I could see you know, what we'd call it. And Adam was the sales guy, and he got excited by it because he could see he could sell it across the hotel chains of the world, but it was John, the third of us, who'd done engineering that got so excited because this was validation for that geeky degree course, and <laughs> we, we, we left him for the afternoon, Adam and I actually went snowboarding, he stayed behind and started drawing plans for how this thing would work, and I remember sitting in this bar in Davos, in, in Switzerland, the resort we were in, looking at these drawings and realising all of them involved water and electricity in place of <laughs> I remember pointing out it was supposed to be making life easier and better for people, not shorter. And <laughs> so we had that idea, we had a second idea which was equally rubbish, but then our third idea came from listening to um, my boss at the time, a woman called Kathy Reed, who said if you're setting up a business then the most important thing is to make sure you properly understand your target audience. And we thought, okay, yeah, that sounds sensible. The only target audience that we could say that we knew were ourselves, and so then the the conversation became one of, what do we actually need on a day-to-day -day basis? What's a problem that we need solving? What's an itch that we need scratching? And just as three guys, 20, we're all 26, we're living and working in London, we're drinking too much beer, we're eating too much pizza, we're kind of aware of the importance of healthy eating, but modern life was kind of conspiring against it. And we figured, well, there's a, there's a little riddle. And I think, I think a lot of time businesses, they solve riddles for people, you know, there's these conflicting issues, and 
if you can somehow get the solution to the problem. And that's what Innocent was, that's what we wanted of Innocent, to become the answer to that question of, you know, how can I do myself some good in a way that's easy and, and, and is nice and enjoyable. And from that bit of thinking, we got to the smoothie, which is, you know, crushed up fruit, put it into a bottle, you grab it on your way to work, and it was all about giving people a, a healthy habit <coughs> to compensate for probably the, the less healthy ones. So then we had an idea that we understood, and it was simple, it was just fruit crushed <coughs> into bottles, and there was something about having the simplicity to it that was really powerful, because we could get our heads around it. We started from the... Uh, well, we, 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 the three of us were showing a house in Barons Court in West London, so we used the kitchen there and we'd make up smoothie recipes, take them into our workplaces the next day, try them out, give them to our parents at the weekend and see what they thought. And did that for a few months, getting a sense of how to develop a smoothie and then, you know, what fruits people like and all that type of thing. And we'd been doing that for about six months. And realised it came to that point where you had to sort of, at some point, you have to take the plunge and go in and resign. And we just didn't have the confidence to do it. And... The reason why we didn't was because we hadn't found, basically, we'd only been asking our mums if, they, if she thought our products were good. And if, if your own mum doesn't say yes, then you know you're in trouble. And <laughs> what we needed was some people that didn't know us, that bought the products, and then told us that they liked them. And we just had this great opportunity. We used to organise a little jazz festival in, in, in London, and it was coming up to that time of year again. We realised that people that came to the festival were exactly the type of people that we hoped would buy our smoothies. So... We decided to do a test market and we bought 500 pounds worth of fruit, turned it to our favourite recipe at the time and made a thousand bottles of smoothies and we just had a tiny little stall at this music festival and it was nothing more than some bales of hay and some planks of woods and some vats of ice to keep the drinks cold and we just sold the smoothies and um, in terms of market research we just had a big sign above the stall that said should we give up our jobs to make these smoothies and had a bin that said yes on it and a bin that said no on it and then Asked people to buy the smoothies and vote with the empty bottles, and it was it was really powerful because we we committed to each other that if the yes bin was full at the end of the weekend, then we'd go in the next day and resign. And so we had this quite hot, sweaty Sunday evening counting out the yes bottles and the no bottles. And there was a few in the no bins, which was really funny that we traced back to our mums who were trying to <laughs> persuade us out of giving up our decent jobs at the time. We were darling, are you sure it's the right idea? And, but the estimate was full, so then we said we'd go in the next day and resign, and we all committed that at 10.30 on that Monday morning we would do it, and I found myself at 10.27 outside my boss's office thinking, I've just got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> and I went back to my desk, and at about 10.33 I rang up Adam and John and said, have you resigned yet? And they're like, no, have you resigned yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's this really weird psychology that nobody wanted to go first, because everyone was suspecting that the other two guys were just doing it to stitch up their best <laughs> So anyway, we bluffed each other into doing it, and we sort of resigned, and then went back to the business full-time. And um, I guess the aspirations we had for the business were... Were, were pretty modest. We, we launched with three little bottles and we had a five-year business plan which would get it to be a £6 million turnover business which we absolutely didn't believe. We thought there's just no chance. I mean, £6 million is a massive amount of money. We thought was, but you've got to be ambitious, so we, we put that number in. Our entire NPD strategy for the next five years was we said at some point we'd do a fourth bottle. and that was, So that was the sort of scale of the ambition. And oh, and, and actually, we foresaw that the business was going to be about selling those bottles in independent delicatessens, health food shops, coffee bars, and, and that type of thing. So, so we, we got started, and then in month four, we sort of did our fourth recipe, and we realised we'd, we'd already got through our five-year innovation strategy. <laughs> and then we started having these, like, well, now I'm in 
embarrassing sort of insights and observations. They were so goddamn obvious, but then we suddenly thought of this revolutionary idea that there's these things called supermarkets, and, <laughs> and people buy food in supermarkets, so then maybe we can put smoothies and sell our smoothies in supermarkets, and then we started doing them in big one-litre cartons, and then we had this other insight, because we're really, really bright guys, that sometimes men and women get together and, and make babies and have children, and then we realised we could do smoothies for kids, and now actually those three bits of it, that business is as big as that business, which is as big as that business, so it's, it's really allowed us to... You know, by, I guess what we've done there is we, 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 so we keep the software the same, but we've changed the hardware, i.e. the software, the mango and passion fruit smoothie, is the same in that, that bottle as it is in that carton. But I put it in that carton and I can sell it to a 45-year-old mum, whereas that one's going to be bought by a 28-year-old female single lawyer. I mean, this is obviously not just that time. <laughs> there was a great moment, actually, about three years into the business, we did our first bit of market research, we got back the insight that all our consumers were rich, single females were like <laughs> um, anyway so we sort of we've grown by sort of innovating but sort of within within the the, the the existing core we've also then grown by going sort of wider geographically so we definitely only saw ourselves as becoming either a london or maybe one day a uk juice company but then we realized over time that actually there's the brand travels the idea of making natural healthy ethical food that kind of works in, in, in lots of different places. So we now trade in 13 different countries. Um, and, and, and the sales growth has been so much more than we thought. You know, we actually did get to the six million pounds, but then the business just went absolutely through the roof. You know, it's all these huge doublings in size each year, which are a combination of getting into the supermarkets, finding whole new opportunities like that. You know, one of these cartons and kids smoothies. And, and also that was a year we did our first bit of advertising and, and that helped as well. So it was, this, it was this amazing thing. In 2007, we won the greatest British Businessman Award, and we just had eight years of uninterrupted everything going our way. What was really interesting, in 2008, everything turned on its head, and everything went the opposite direction. In September 2007, we had a budget saying we were going to do 145 million, and we bought all the fruit for that, because you buy it in a year's contract, we'd recruit all the people for that, um, and then everything tanked. We, a big competitor launched against us and took a load of our market share. The smoothie market collapsed by 30% in three months over the summer as the credit crisis hits. The exchange rate plummeted and we buy all fruit in euros and dollars. Um, and the price of fruit reached a global height as a demand from India and Russia for the first time becoming major fruit importers. And so in that year alone, we lost more money than we'd made in the entire company's history. And to this day, Innocent is net negative in terms of the, the profit versus the loss. So as I say to people, don't think of us as a business. We, we should be thought of as a primarily as a fruit distribution charity. <laughs> We're much better at getting fruit to people at a price that's below the market rate. Um, and the other thing, in 2008, the, the press turned against us. There was loads of stuff in, in the press about smoothies making of bum fat and that they were full of... Um, they were full of sugar. We, did, um, we took investment from who we now call our sugar daddy, Coca-Cola. They, they put money into the business to fund the international expansion. And actually, in, this, in, in the UK, it wasn't too bad, the sort of the heat that we got in the press. I remember one article that said, Innocent starts sucking the corporate sausage, which I thought was a interesting way of putting it. This is an article from uh, a, a French newspaper. You see, took a, a slightly less than positive uh, a view on it. Although, interestingly, the thing that got caused the most controversies, we started selling our kids 
smoothies through McDonald's, which for us was absolutely on mission. That's exactly what we're about, about trying to get natural, healthy food to people. And the idea of having healthy food at McDonald's for us was, was a great idea, but it caused a bit of a stink, and quite a lot of our you know, loyal consumers complained, and the press picked up on it. And I remember the most punchy article that was written said, um, said it's like finding out that your uncle is a paedophile. <laughs> no comment. Um, anyway, so yeah, we've gone from being the world, the Britain's greatest businessmen to paedophiles within the month. So we've sort of we've had amazing times and tough times, and then back to more moderated times. I guess it's a cliche thing to say, but we're so much stronger now than we were then. Then we were sort of a bit giddy of it, and we'd stop real, you know, we'd stop doing the things that were most important. We we'd lost the sense of the economics of the business, we were, we were, I spent a lot of time in Ibiza that year, I mean it was a great year, but it was not good for the business, whereas this, this side of that horrible year, we are leaner, clearer, a bit more mature, it's like having that first fight in the school playground, you, it's not pleasant, but you feel a little bit more resilient afterwards, so I think, uh, you know, it's, an, it's a much stronger business now than it was, and hopefully our better years are ahead of us. Anyway, that's the potted history. Um, in terms of things that we've learned, um, I just pulled, pulled five things up. Um, and again, apologies in advance. These things you guys are going to know already, but they're real obvious ones. Um, they just have a, a, a particular resonance to me because I, I, I see innocent. When we do these things and we remember these things, we have a good day. And when we don't remember them, don't do them, we have a, a bad day. So I sort of see real time that these things are, are absolutely true, which the first thing is having a purpose helps. Having a, a clearly articulated sense of why you exist as a business beyond the financial. I mean, of course, we want to grow and create profit, but that's, that's true of all businesses. And a business that can articulate what it's uniquely here to do, it's really powerful. It motivates, it engages in employees, it helps with the strategic decision-making of the business. Um, it just keeps an internal soul of an organisation. And I think whether it's a sporting team, a political party, a charity or a business institution, knowing what you're here to do and why you're here is, is, is really powerful. Henry Ford always used to talk about the fact that his sense of purpose was one of personal freedom of movement. He said he wanted to allow man to go wherever he want, wherever he damn well wanted. And that sense of that's what drove him to set up Ford Motor Cars. Google, which is a company I'm obsessed with because they set up literally the same month of us, and they're at 80 billion versus our 100 million. So, <laughs> interesting. My presentation is called Five Things We Found to Be True. They've got a thing on their website which is called Ten Things That They Found to Be True. So they keep beating me on every document. <laughs> um, but you know the Google purpose about to make the world to, to organise the world's information and make it universally available. I mean that one sentence sums up that 80 billion dollar corporation. Explains why they did Google Earth and why they bought YouTube. It's it's just really powerful to, to know what you're about. And, you know, we, we, this is what we're about. We're, we're about preventing that. You know, do we, we exist to stop that happening. We, at, at the beating heart of innocence, there's an absolute serious mission to try and help people be healthy. That's really what we ultimately, ultimately care about. Um, and it informs our product development, it informs the people that we try and recruit. It gives people a sense of why they're doing this thing that they're doing 10 hours a day. Um, I put in a couple of other pictures, which I think are just great examples of. This is an organisation that absolutely, absolutely knows what it's all about and what it's here to do. It's a, 
It's, it's a genuine photograph. It's, a, it's the head office of a company in America that makes baskets. <laughs> and I think, look at that, and think that is definitely an organisation that knows what it's about. And you can imagine if you're a hungover employee walking in on the morning, and thinking to yourself, what am I supposed to do today? And you look at that and you go, oh yeah, make a basket. <laughs> but perversely, it's, there's always the, the counter sort of example. This is a great example of not knowing what you're doing. <laughs> so, 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 Uh, it's about people, again, I mean, it's such a trite thing to say, but it's, it's just so fundamentally true, you know, I've, I've, I've come to realise a business is not the brand, it's not the, it's not the capital, it's not the building, it's not the technology, it's a community, it's, it's a community of humans and individuals, and so actually business is best thought of as being a sort of, it's, a, it's the whole thing's an experiment in psychology, it's about can you find the very best brains and get them to want to be part of your team and make sure that they're focused on what they're doing best that the organisation most needs and that they're rewarded and motivated and it, it, the whole thing, is a, it, it comes out of psychology, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So we do what we can to absolutely, you know, find the very best people and keep the very best people and we have sort of, we have certain philosophies, certain principles that inform the decisions that we make. One is that everyone should get something and, and the people that are the best should get the most and we deliver that on so everyone gets a share in the profits of the business, everyone gets... Um, free shares in the business and everyone gets access to discounted options in the business and so everyone gets that at a base and then what the all of each of these things are then are massively skewed to the performance of the individual so quite simply the better you perform the, the, the more of the profits you get and the more discounted options you get and it locks people in it gives them a reason to uh, to sort of work that little bit harder um, so there's the hard there's sort of the biggest stuff we do to sort of retain and to motivate and engage and there's the little things that we do that Cost nothing, but just hopefully create a, a slightly more exciting community to be part of. And that's simple things like having a cereal bowl with your name on it when you turn up. We get together on a Monday morning from 9 to 9.30, the whole business. We sort of hang out in the chat area and just hear what's going on in the business that week. It's just for 30 minutes, but it just means everyone's getting to understand what's happening. Because fundamentally, you can't expect someone to care about something they don't know about. So we, we invest really heavily in the, in the time to make sure that the internal communications of innocent are real time and transparent, and people know the bad stuff and the good stuff, um, so that you know they can really participate in it. We have a thing called Lord and Lady of the Sash, which is just a thing that people win once a month. It's basically the employee of the month, the person that's really gone that extra mile. Um, um, it's called Lord and Lady of the Sash because if you if you win it, you're uh, uh, a woman, you get a sash and a tiara, and if you're a guy, you get a sash and a top hat, and you get given. I think you get dinner for two people. But then the weirdest thing is that everyone at the company meeting gets down on their knees and has to start pledging allegiance to you. <laughs> it's the most bizarre thing to see. I have to say, I've realised these days people don't want to win it because it's so embarrassing. <laughs> we have a thing called Innocent Scholarships, which is £1,000 to do something outside of work that's got absolutely nothing to do with work. So it's about facilitating people's passions. Because again, that's the other thing we look for in people. We want people to have those spikes that... I don't care what it is, I just care that they care about something. That they could be chocolate buttons for all I care, but I want people to have those, those passions. It just makes them, they tend to be people that are better to work with. And so people have used that money to cycle across Africa or to record a demo album, or someone's just done it for a brewery course in Manchester. So now we're incentivizing our employees to turn into alcoholics. But it's <laughs> this is a baby bonus, so we pay £2,000 to a baby if, if, if you have a child. And, it's kind of an opportunity to just use our purized sense of humour because it says on the thing that the payment terms are cash on delivery only. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, so that's all the nice stuff. And then, of course, the, the, there's always the, the, and then the slightly tougher stuff you've got to do. And again, this is one of, one of our big mistakes. We didn't realise this at first. And you've got to sometimes get the, you know, got, you've got to ask people to get off the bus. Any community only works on the principle that uh, a community is only healthy if everyone's participating and contributing and not sort of, if everyone's going to be sort of net positive to that community. And the reality is sometimes you get people are either neutral, which is sort of okay, but not great. And then you get snipers, people are actually transmitting negative energy or not helping or making things worse. And you've just got to be so brutal at getting you know, to that as soon as it arises. That doesn't mean fire people straight away. It means give people the opportunity to, to rectify, to be real. If we give them real time feedback about it, it's, it's not working for us, but we'd love it to work, but this is what it would need to be. But um, Sometimes you've got to do, do the tougher parts. And I spent for the first three years being really proud of innocent. We had a 100% retention rate, so no one ever left. And it turns out that that's not actually healthy. There does need to be a certain dynamism and sort of new people coming and some people sort of making way for the people that have got that sort of that new wave of energy or experience. And I only learned this from listening to a guy called Dan, Dan Walker, who's the head of talent at Apple Computers. And he was at a business conference a few years ago and quite a match American guy sat on this stool, quite a big bloke, with his legs wide open, going, you've got to get rid of the crap people. You've got to get rid of the crap people. And because it's England, we're all sort of, all these, all, all of us polite people are going, blimey, this is a bit full on. And this really nice, <laughs> this really nice polite English woman puts a hand up and goes, but I don't understand, what am I supposed to do if I don't have anyone to replace the so-called crap person? And he just said this, I always remember he said, honey, I'd always rather have a hole than an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a fundamental truth there. Like, you know, so think about the business that you guys run, you know, it, it's, it comes down to this, the, the strength of the talent. So you've got to protect the good, you've got to protect the good guys. Um, get the basic structure right. Uh, I think there's been like there's been a couple of things that we well there's been one thing that we got right and one thing that we got drastically wrong. And if we if we had got the right thing wrong, I wouldn't be stood here today. And if we hadn't got lucky with the second one, I wouldn't be stood here today. So I thought I'd just share them with you. The, there's something to think about in our world, at least, where we're sort of basically, we're, you know, our smoothies, the, to make a smoothie, someone's got to grow some fruit, and then it's got to be crushed, and then it's got to be put in a bottle, and it's got to be delivered to the shop, and then you've got to have the relationship with the shopkeeper, and then the relationship with the consumer. The question is, within that whole sort of ecosystem, which bits are we going to do? And when we were writing the business plan, we originally thought that well, actually what we need to be doing here is raising money to build a juice factory. And that made us feel quite ill inside because we didn't really perceive ourselves as being guys that were going to be any good at you know, building a juice factory and running a juice factory. But we couldn't quite see how we were going to do it if we didn't. And then we started looking into the, you know, the option of outsourcing it. But it was a real tough, it felt like a real 50-50 position for about you know, three to four months. But we came down on the side ultimately of, of outsourcing. And if we hadn't done that, then the business definitely, if it had got started, it would have, it would have certainly not succeeded. Or we certainly would have been able to grow and be able to respond to our consumers in the, in, in the ways that we've been able to. Because all this stuff is really, really important and really, really hard and really, really difficult. And there's a big, big difference between running a factory and selling and marketing a brand. We realised we have to be basically the guys out there sort of creating this thing and getting it sold and established. And if we were always the ones making sure that the packaging line worked well, then you're just not going to be able to do both things brilliantly. What we did realise at the time that there's real intellectual property in the business. What it comes down to is it's kind of a commodity business, really, sticking fruit down a pipe into a bottle. What's really 
important though is do you know which fruit, which growers, and do you make the recipes yourself? So at Fruit Towers now we have, I think what I can claim is Europe's best team of agronomists who spend most of their time out in the fields buying the fruit, having a direct relationship with the growers, and then a, a wicked group of people that then take the fruits that they send back and make the recipes out of them. So that's ours and no one else has access to that information. Our fruit is then crushed up and goes to our manufacturing partners and they're doing what we call the heavy lifting, the bit you're going to spend millions of pounds buying the machinery and the kit and doing all that type of stuff. And what we do is we then have the relationship with the consumers and the customers. And actually they're the three most important relationships in the business. The relationship with the Tesco's of this world, the relationship with the end consumers, the people that buy the actual products, and the relationship with the people who grow the fruit. And I'm really glad we made that decision, and we made that decision mainly by, you know, sort of chance. So it's just something for you guys to think about when the business is you're setting up. You're outsourcing, you're doing it yourself, and our way is, was right for us. It doesn't mean it's going to be right for you, but it is definitely something to sort of think through. The second thing, and this is where we nearly absolutely uh, screwed it up. Well, we did screw it up, but um, we managed to sort of turn it around. We didn't realise, but in any industry, there's going to be a kind of like a typical economic structure of, of a business. Um, and it's really helpful once you know what that is. Now, of course, you can deviate from that, and you might be, you know, be able to improve in it or find a different take on it. But at least start from knowing what the sort of the, the, the economic model average is. So, the world of FMCG typically, you'd want to be making a minimum of 40% gross margin from the products you sell. Investing, and this is really, really rough for the, the sake of simplicity, around 15% in brand support. So, the stuff that you invest in to get to your consumers and to support your retailers. 15% in all the sort of the payroll and the overheads and all that type of stuff, leaving with a nice sort of average 10% of, of profits. Now we had, I only learned this at the end of 2008, and that was only because I had a funding advisor look over our business because we were in crisis, because we'd been running a business that had this structure, which was a gross margin of about 32%, still spending the 15% on marketing, had a massive overhead of 20%, which is, you know, like, way bigger than what the industry norm would be, which meant as we did the maths, then we're losing money. That's the, the fruit distribution charity bit of it. But we weren't conscious of it, and it caught us out. And then we managed to get a funding investment and then turn the corner on it. But I really wish I'd have known just that simple economic model to think about um, at the beginning of 2008, because then I might have had a sense of we're running something which is totally unsustainable. <coughs> Uh, take care of the details, a completely different point of something we found to be true that in this day and age you need to get all the big stuff right just to get to the playing table. Um, but weirdly, once you've got the big stuff right and in place, actually it can be just the tiny little details around the edges that create the reason for consumers to be motivated to, to choose you and to be loyal to you and to remember you. Um, I sort of stumbled across it when I realised I was buying a, a, a flight to New York from Virgin Atlantic, and I couldn't remember why I was looking at Virgin Atlantic before I looked at British Airways, because actually they're doing the same thing. It's from the same city to the same city. They run exactly the same planes. It's the same 31 seat, itch, uh, seat um, pitch in economy. Same time, same cost, so everything's the same. But why am I choosing Virgin? And I traced it back, and it was because the first time I flew with them, they gave me a free ice cream in the middle of the in-flight movie. <laughs> so it was that tiny little detail that just made me a little bit more loyal to them as a consumer. Now, that only matters if they've got the big stuff right. So if Virgin planes are falling out of the sky and everyone's dying, <laughs> I don't care about a free shop ice. <laughs> if you get the big stuff right, get it in place, then you can actually sort of work the details to create a sort of 
you know, as I say, a, a reason for you to choose you rather than the next guy, which is what business comes down to a lot of the time. Um, so none of these are important in themselves because by their very nature, they're only small little things. But if you do lots of small little things, then hopefully it, it adds up to something more. So I just put this in as one example. You're supposed to write use by and then the date on, a, on our food products. And we thought, well, that's a bit nuts because you don't use a fruit juice, hopefully you enjoy it. So we just wrote enjoy by and we, you know, we got called by trading standards and they pulled us up on it and we explained to them our rationale and ultimately to our surprise they said they were fine with it. So, you know, and it's just a tiny little thing but it kind of helps and, it, you know, it's not always worked out quite the way we intended it. We, um, I don't know if anyone's bought a smoothie and sometimes you see in the ingredient panel we're putting silly jokes. Yeah. Um, I'm about three years into the business, um, I'd written a strawberry banana smoothie label and in the recipe it, it, we'd written six strawberries, two bananas, half an orange. And then I wrote, and two plump nuns. <laughs> and it didn't really mean anything. It was just a stupid joke, but we printed it and forgot about it. And then about three weeks later, I got a call from Kensington and Chelsea Trading Standards Office saying that they'd had a complaint about this. Um, it'd be brought to their attention. And um, they were going to launch a formal inquiry. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. It's just a stupid, you know, it's just a stupid joke. No one's going to take it seriously. And they said, well, we do. And I remember at that time thinking, this is both hilarious and sort of a little bit sort of nerve-wracking. <laughs> but anyway, so this, this, this formal inquiry started and we had to sort of present our evidence and write letters. And it ended with my sort of day in court, basically, with an adjudicator and everyone sort of them representing their side and me representing my side. And the adjudicator said that they were going to retire and write to me with their judgment. And I have to say, it's the, it's the single best letter I've ever received. It, I opened it and it said, Dear Mr. Reed." You must either take off the reference to plump nuns or start putting them in your fruit juice. It's <laughs> 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 like a really great lesson because we've actually got a frame that, that for this um, So, yeah, we, we work the details, we just try and do things ever so slightly differently. You know, covered our, our sampling bands in grass and daisies and fitted hydraulics to it so it dances around. And again, if you put that outside Sainsbury's on a Saturday morning, it's just a little bit more noticeable than. Your average thing, if you take pictures these days with social media, that one silly little thing like that can actually get seen by quite a lot of people. When we did our yogurt drinks, we turned our vans into cows around the back, there's a tail and an udder, and on the dashboard there's a button, your presser goes moving loudly, and again, <laughs> driving us through London. I mean, actually, there's quite a lot of stories that some of my sales guys have managed to get dates from just you know, driving the van, so it's all, <laughs> everyone wins. Um, and you get one of the benefits is you get if you get it right and if you know if it's if it's sincere and it's charming and it's you know and if it's if it's kind of congruent, we found it, it helped to activate sort of a small but very loyal, very vocal group of consumers that just sort of go out in society and just absolutely evangelise about the business. There's, this is um, Barry who's got the the dude permanently tattooed on his arm. He's, he's one of five people that got the, the that logo tattooed in various parts of their bodies and. Interesting, we now have, a, we, have, we have five corporate targets for 2012. One's about revenue, one's about profit, and a couple of the business ones, but we have a tattoo target, so we're trying to get to, I'm trying to get us to 10 tattoos by 2012, so if anyone would like to help out. Um, this was funny, on our, on our ninth birthday, 38 different consumers made us a homemade birthday cake and brought it into Fruit Towers, which was sort of quite an amazing day, especially if you like cake. Um, <laughs> And I don't know if you come across this as another thing that, you know, you, with these little details, it's, you never underestimate starting small. It, 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 things can get bigger. This is a, a charity initiative we do called The Big Net. And um, it's slightly bizarre and complicated, but basically volunteers knit these little woolen hats. 
They send them into us, we stick them on bottles, they go out to the supermarkets, and then for every bottle that's sold, we give 50p to age concern to help old people keep warm during the winter. The guy that came up with this um, uh, incident said, he, he came up with the idea, and I, was, I remember saying, it was a mate, it's rubbish, that'll never work, I mean, you're never going to get any volunteers to do it. And, and he said, look, mate, all I need you to do is just agree to 50p a hat. And I remember thinking, yeah, well, that's easy, because you're not going to get any hats, mate. So I said, yeah, yeah, fine, 50p a hat. That first year, he got 3,000 hats knitted. So I'm like, that's fine, that's all right. The second year, he got 20,000. Then it went up to 80,000. Then it went up to 240,000. And this last year, it was 540,000 hats, all knitted by volunteers. We get them sent in from literally across the world these days. And it's just funny, these little ideas, they, and oh, by the way, this gets us an insane amount of press coverage. The sales go up by 50%. The retailers love us because, quite frankly, there's a lot of people in the UK supermarkets doing buy one, get one free offers. There's not many people that do sort of woolen hat offers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, and, it, and it, you know, it's just one of those things, the, the little details that we've you know, we found to be powerful. And of course, the little details, if you get them wrong, uh, <laughs> you eat <equally so. laughs> I this to start, It's quite easy target.
um, a person in the audience said, well, isn't it really inconvenient, you know, people calling for the weekend? And he said, he said, I've only ever been called once by an irate consumer at the weekend, and it caused me no problem whatsoever. And then he went and spotted by saying, because I was on the golf course and my wife took the phone call. But... <laughs> <laughs> and he, did, he then sort of tried to recover and said, but it's really important culturally to say that I am here and we exist because these people are good enough to you know, use our services, so we want to be here for them. So I love that idea of keeping sort of conscious of the fact that and without the consumers, we just go up in a, in a puff of smoke. Uh, my final chart is, is I guess, is, is a great, well, I think it's, it's my favorite example of some consumer feedback. It's, it's, not, it's not that innocent. It was written by an eight-year-old girl who was on a Qantas flight to Australia and wrote a letter, gave it to the air hostess, and asked to be given it to the pilot. And to me, it's, it's the quintessential example of why it is great to open up and to be porous, because in business world, you know what it's like, we all get we get lost in the madness of the terminology and the market research and all the sort of nonsense. And we, you just lose track of what's real life and what people really care about. And if you are just culturally open to what consumers are saying, they are brilliant at cutting through all the crap and just getting to the absolute heart of it is what they actually hold to be most important, what they care the most about. Which, of course, if you're running a business, that's that nugget of information that you want more than anything. What does my consumer most want of me so then I can hopefully then satisfy them? So this, by far, chart is my, my favorite example of how consumers can sometimes just, you know, ultimately, you know, be very nice, say some good stuff, but ultimately just tell them exactly what it is that they should be focusing on. I'll read it out in case you can't see it at the back. It says, Dear Captain, my name is Nicola. I'm eight years old. This is my first flight, but I'm not scared. I like to watch the clouds go by. My mum says the crew is nice. I think your plane is good. Thanks for a nice flight. Don't fuck up the language. <laughs> 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 anyway, so there are five things that we sort of we we found to be true that we, we try and remind ourselves of. I, I literally had this thing, I had this picture, and I had the picture of the the, the basket office of my desk at Fruit Towers, just to sort of remind myself of. You've got to be there for your consumers. You've got to have a clear sense of purpose. And you know, if you look after the people uh, that are then part of this amazing journey of setting up and running a business, then hopefully, you know, you can you, you can get someone with, with the vision and, and the things that you're setting out to achieve. Anyway, awesome opportunity for me to come and speak to you guys. Uh, it's been real fun, and I'm definitely up for taking any questions or any thoughts or any ideas you guys have. So thank you very much. Saying, of course, we didn't sell out, they bought in, and to me, there's a, there's, there's a big difference. I like it. Uh, um, no, we, we still run the business, and we still have majority control of the business. They have 58% of the shares, but we have 75% of the voting rights. Okay. So it's a very, very unique deal. It's, I think it genuinely is a unique deal. I don't know another deal where 
a business has the majority of the shares but doesn't have the majority of the control. They were totally cool with that. That's the way they wanted it. They wanted to be an investor, not a sort of a, a company running it. Their, their view was, look, we're busy running our own company. And secondly, you're different to us. And we've learned that if we try and get involved, we're going to screw it up. So we think we love the brand. We love the philosophy. We think you're, you know, you've got the potential to become a billion-dollar brand. We'd like to invest in it. If there's anything we can do to help, then definitely let us know, and we'll fall over ourselves to do it, which that they have back to be true and good to their word. But other than that, I have a, a two-hour meeting with them once every three months. Um, we, they have, they, we don't have get. There's nothing that we have to go for approval on. We get to decide what we do with the same people making the same stuff in the same way. So it's actually been an, ex, an extremely positive thing, and the business is. is I think personally, the business has never been stronger, and having those guys in the background has definitely, definitely helped. Did you have enough budget though? No. No. Okay. No, I didn't. Uh, for several reasons. One is we had lots of offers on the table. It wasn't like we, we had to do a deal with Coca-Cola or else. There was there was lots of other options. Um, from the beginning, we we met these guys, and they were just really decent and ordinary and honest. And for us, there was there was an instant trust, which for me is about the most important thing possible in a relationship. Um, and, and, and not only did they show that they got it from the beginning, they really went the way that they structured the offers, what they prepared to sign up to legally, really proved that they, they meant what they said. Whereas other, other businesses, there was one offer on the table that they put in the money as long as we stopped giving 10% of profits to charity and paid it to them as a dividend instead. Another one said that they put in the money as long as we gave the majority control on the board. And Coke were like, they just got what we were about. And, so you know, we, we love the relationship. It's been it's been it's been excellent. Okay. Yeah. It's been okay. good. Second rude question um, was: you talk about a noble purpose, which is very rousing and you know making life a bit better and a bit easier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But then you take that on one hand, and on the other hand, you have a uh, crushed truth. There's a bit of an incongruity there, you know. You couldn't you have come up with something in your brainstorm, I, I can't think what it would have been, but that had a more noble purpose than crushed fruit. Because clearly, you well, know, and this is not a personal attack that yeah, you yeah, sit yeah, on the board yeah. of Oxfam, you yeah. yourself clearly have a noble purpose, but mm. crushed fruit ultimately is not per se noble. Well actually my point I, I hear what you say, my point was having a purpose is the most important thing. The noble thing was, you know, I was I, I was always parodying ourselves and we said we make life better and easier. Making it sound like Miss World contestants. So um, I guess there's that to say. Okay. What do I fundamentally believe? I believe that um, there is great karma in getting natural, healthy food to people. And I think it's. I think one of our our best responsibility is that we're in the business. We're a Trojan horse, getting things that are absolutely incontestably good for people into their bodies when most food companies are actually secretly doing kind of the opposite. So I actually, I, I personally think at a really, really deep level with it. And I would never use the word noble to describe it. That was me parodying okay. sort of in an early part of the presentation. Um, but I'm really proud of it. But given you sit on the board of Oxfam and all these other truly noble things, do you mm. not wish you had started a business that was noble? Um, where it wouldn't be a parody where you would say, or feel at least, because you're not the kind of guy here around saying it, that it really was making a fundamental difference to people's lives? Or does that have to be separate as a charity role and then the entrepreneurial stuff on the other side? Well, um, I think it's a, it's a great question. It's a really sort of powerful question. Uh, uh, 
I may be about to embarrass myself, but I, I really believe in, in, in the mission of what we do. In 2008, the Cabinet Office released a paper called Food Matters. In it, they estimated that 44,000 premature deaths a year in the UK alone would be prevented if you've got their five a day. We see fruit and vegetables being sort of funny, slightly boring things. They actually are the most nutrition-packed things that the human body can eat, and it gives you the ability to fight major instances of disease. Our house phrase is instant exists to help people live well and die old. We don't talk about it externally because it sounds like massively overclaimed, but actually, really, uh, in its final analysis, we're in the sort of life extension business because fruit and vegetables, the single, outside of genetics and not smoking, it's the single most effective choice you can make to improve the chances of living longer. So for me, I am super grounded and in love with in what we do. And we give 10% of our profits to charity. And we've pioneered uh, really, really tough standards in terms of social environmental procurement of ingredients. We've got the toughest uh, minimum standards in the world. We developed the, the world's first 100% recycled plastic bottle. We got our supply base to go to green electricity. We've done things beyond the, the mere financial. Um, so I am, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's a good mission. There are better missions, for sure, but I like our mission. Okay. And my last question is just what's next? You know, this, it's quite hard to beat what's uh, before. Well, it sounds like I bet you're going to be more noble. <laughs> um, uh, what's next? Oh, it's more of the same, really. Okay. Yeah, again, we, 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 we really do see our role is to be this Trojan horse in society, getting things that people might see as being a little bit boring into the diet by making it delicious and interesting and convenient. I can't tell you the number of parents that bring us up or write to us going, thank you so much, this is the first time I've actually got my kid to get some fruit inside their diet. And are we talking to me now we're trying to sex up vegetables because fruit's easy because it's sweet, now we're trying to get vegetables in people's diets. And <laughs> you're getting a sense we really were totally into fruit and vegetables. If, you, if I remember at the party, I'm kind of the guy shaking out the fruit salad. I don't look like the girl who's going to have this one. Alright, on that note, let's throw it open. You must have loads of questions. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you two questions. If you, ask, uh, if you answer one, it's okay. If you answer two, uh, it's similar. Uh, first, uh, first thing is, uh, this idea is uh, like, obviously is a result of creative thinking. And I was wondering if you had some patterns in your brainstorming sessions, or was it random? And the second question is a little different. Um, uh, what was that actually? <laughs> uh, don't, don't you think it's too much based on three of you guys, your business? Like uh, obviously, uh, sometimes you have to leave business or you know, people get old, uh, die. And, and oh, after that, don't, don't, uh, don't you think, yeah, do you think the company will be successful after that, after a while? Yeah, um, okay, great. Uh, well, the creativity, the, yeah. what, the process and how yeah, we do it. Yeah, did you have any That's a good questions? question, we've just been doing a That's why I wanted yeah. your lecture. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I think there's things you can do to increase the likelihood of being success. And you've always got to bear in mind it is mercurial and it's the science of the brain, and so you've got to get lucky as well. But um, uh, simple things. Uh, it's about, I think, creativity is really problem-solving. It's that you can apply a certain logic to it. So you, and it starts with understanding what is the actual problem that you're trying to solve, what is the thing that you're trying to express, or the person, who's the person, what you're trying to get them to do, what would make them do it, therefore what can you say and do uh, to make them do that. Um, 
I, I'm a big fan of any. If you ask about brainstorming sessions. Yeah, we you know we definitely do them, but what we will always do is make people think independently first, because there's something about that six brains working independently is a lot a lot of the time covers more ground than six brains collectively thinking. So we will. Um, clearly articulate the problem that we're trying to solve. We will get people to think independently before then we get them into the group. And then we will just keep trying to keep discipline <coughs> to make sure that every ounce and every idea that we have, is it solving the problem or is it just a bit of interesting entertainment on the side? And I guess the fourth thing is creativity does first appear as this tiny little green shoes, which is so easy to stamp on. And the job is actually to sort of protect it and water it and get people to sort of go over there for a bit and just see what it, it can become. So we're sort of we, we nurture, but we try and keep it relevant. The thing about it, it, the business, about the three of us, I think one of the, one of the strengths about Innocent is not about the three of us. We're not, it's, it's not a personality-led, sorry, it's not, a, it's not associated with the, me, Adam, and John. I am genuinely the, if you had to take one person out of the business, I'm probably the first one you could take out and for it to, to continue to work it, it extremely well. It's not like a Branson thing. It's, it's not called after us. It's sure, it's got our personalities in it, but it's got the personalities now of 200 people. The, the values that we've written were written by everyone in the business at the time. Uh, it's about innocent, it's not about Richard, Adam, and John. And I think if you came through times, you get a sense of that, that you know, we're, just, we're all there serving this sort of the innocent mission. Yeah. Christian, you, you mentioned that you had some, made some overestimations in, um, in the, the amount of fruit you needed to buy. Yeah. How do you prevent this from happening again? Because you were talking about yearly contracts. Yeah. Is that changed? So you now you do shorter contracts, or how does that work? Yeah. Well, I think a large part of it is it, it's it's better business planning. It's we made this. Uh, you know, I said that we thought we were going to go up to 245 million. It wouldn't be too much of an exaggeration to say we thought that because we've done that for the last three years. So we thought kind of well, we've gone by 40 million for the last three years. That must mean we're going to go by 40 million. Completely stupid. What we, what actually now we will do is work out so, what, how many products, <coughs> how many shelves, and what rate of sale, and build it up so you can actually get a real tangible sense of how much can you grow, what is a realistic forecast, and then buy fruit against that. Um, but we've also, you know, we, we try to source from southern hemisphere as well as northern hemisphere, which means that we get sort of six monthly contracts rather than yearly contracts and so the things you can do to mitigate against it but i guess we did it so we got it so bad wrong that you know we are now obsessed with the forecasting to make sure that we buy to a more accurate level yeah um you're saying that the origin of your fruit is really important to you and also like from your website we can see that sustainability is really important to you um, so you're not using a certificate like the fair trade certificate? Um, is that because you see that one as not fitting? Or is it because you don't see the point of proving it to your customer? Um, so, uh, yes and no to, to, sort of to, to those questions. Uh, we actually do use a, a certification process it's called the Rainforest Alliance. So fair trade, organic and Rainforest Alliance are sort of Three bedfellows that are all sort of part of a sort of a, a slightly wider movement for greater social environmental awareness in the way that food's produced. Yes, we definitely don't do any fair trade, um, mainly because the fruits that we buy aren't available uh, at fair trade. It tends to be coffee, chocolate, those types of things. Um, we don't even specify organic. Uh, we specify 
best tasting, pesticide residue free from farms with have met our social and environmental minimum standards, and then we give 10% of profits to go back into the countries where the food comes from. We think that that, as a sort of an, as an approach, kind of gets quite a lot of the good bits of organic, good bits of fair trade or the spirit of it. The Rainforest Alliance is about protecting biodiversity, workers' rights. You put it all together, it allows us to make sure that we're buying first on quality. I don't want to say the most important thing <coughs> is it's organic, or that it's fair trade, because if I'm saying that's the most important thing, I'm by default saying taste at best is secondary, and in food, taste always has to be first. So we go first for taste, but then say it's got to be these things as well. Last, we only have time for one question. Let me make it self-selecting. Who thinks they have a bloody good question? <laughs> there are still no two one. hands up. No, all right, we'll take two then. You both have the confidence to say that yours is good. Go on. Well, can I work for you? <laughs> Maybe we definitely we're always looking for people. We on our web page we put, <laughs> we, put, we put all our jobs live on the web site, and we, the majority of recruits we get through that. So. Fantastic. And the last last question. Okay. Were you ever nervous about mixing friendship with business? Um, no, I, I actually no, I was really excited by it. Because actually, it's why we set up the business. We set up the business because as three friends, it will be amazing to go through life together with this sort of... We really want to work together. And the whole, the whole innocent thing is really just about so we pretend we're still at college. But we, we absolutely took it seriously because we recognised that there could be some potential conflicts and issues. Um, and what, what does that mean? Well, it meant that we wrote the shareholders agreement before we even started the business that said we went through every possible scenario. What if we fall out? What if you run up with my wife? Or every possible <laughs> terrible situation. I know, I, it's like I know what's going to happen if I'm going to talk with my wife. You know, I know how much I can get in shares and <laughs> um, so we were actually going to like confront the, the horrible realities and work out what that was going to be, and then we just—it's all about communication. You know, we 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 make sure at business in, in work we talk about work, and at, outside we we talk about friendships things. And we we we've always kind of kept the the, 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 the things separate. Um, we have had three absolutely massive arguments. One of which nearly didn't quite, it nearly got to us punching each other. One was about what colour we we're going to paint the office for. <laughs> one was what colour we we're going to paint the office pillars. And the one where we nearly punched each other was where we we're going to put a bookshelf. So our insights on that was on one level, we seem to be deeply frustrated interior designers at a level. And, and secondly, that um, they were just sort of. We were always being okay on the sort of the business stuff, the strategy stuff, the, the, the alignment. These were sort of incidental things. It was probably just us letting off steam. So, what it has brought is by being friends and really, really good, true friends is that we absolutely can trust each other. And trust in business is so efficient because it means you don't have to worry about who's got the keys to the cash box and whether yeah, is that person going to do that or not, and are they going to be lying to you or not. So, trust is, I think, is so powerful in business. So I, I, we can trust each other, we know which, what we're all bad at, we know what we're good at, and we could then you know, get the sign of responsibilities accordingly. So for me, it is still, for me, it is the, it is, it's the very best bit of it. <coughs> Fantastic. Well, on that inspirational note, thank you very much.